Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains descriptions of child abuse and sexual assault. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737 732. As well, there are details surrounding infant death. If this affects you, help is always available at Red Nose Grief and Loss. Dial their 24 7 support line on 1300 308 307. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a former detective who spent over a decade working in the front line of child protection, witnessing some of the darkest sides of humanity. Jack Roney is a 33-year veteran of the Queensland Police and recipient of the National Police Medal. During his time in the Child Protection Unit, Jack was involved in not only investigating and arresting offenders, but also interviewing children who were witnesses to major crimes. In this episode, Jack tells the confronting story of a mother and father who were killed in their home in front of their seven children. These kids were still in shock. We're talking about an incident that happened only hours earlier. We were thinking about the process. Look, we have to get this information from the children because they're the only ones who saw the offender. Before we get to that, though, Jack takes us all the way back to his very first week on the job. He's only 18 years old and about to face what can only be described as a baptism of fire. Coming out of the police academy as a young fella, you know, we were very competitive at the academy and, you know, six foot tall and bulletproof, although I was a little fella, you know, I was probably 68 kilos dripping wet and uh, not very tall. So, you know, always felt had something to prove. And, and that was kind of ingrained in us. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be assertive and confident and you, you've got to be prepared to step up when needed. Um, yeah, so the first week uh, I was out in a regional town and I was put onto night work pretty well straight away. It was winter, so it was very cold. And, you know, my, my field training officer was very keen to get, to get an arrest. You know, let's pull up a lot of cars and try and get a drink driver. So the first arrest was a drink driver, but uh, it wasn't textbook. The, the woman was driving. Her husband was in the passenger seat. Of course, he, when we intercepted the vehicle, he jumps out. He wants to bung on a turn. And next minute, I'm wrestling with him on the side of the road. Uh, my partner's wrestling with uh, with the woman, and they both end up getting arrested. So that was my first arrest. That was on my first shift, drink driving, thinking, well, I hope not all drink drivers are going to be the same. Next drink driving arrest, I think, was the next shift, was um, a woman who refused to get out of the car. Uh, I'm thinking, well, what do we do here? They didn't teach us this in the academy, and I was working with a fairly experienced senior constable, and he said, well, if, uh, if the driver doesn't get out of the car, we're going to smash the window. And I said, can we do that? I said, yes, we can do that. And she refused to get out of the car. So the back window got smashed and then had to be restrained. I'm thinking, my God, you know, these are just drink drivers. It can't be this complex every time. 
Uh, and then it kind of just went on to other other jobs and, you know, things like, I remember there was, uh, we got called to the local nightclub and this big bikey guy was causing a major disturbance and he kicked in the front doors and was assaulting people and myself and my partner turned up and here I am again, this little 18-year-old police officer and got into a wrestle with him and managed to get the handcuffs on. And I remember him saying, good on you, mate. You put, you know, you, 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 you uh, conducted yourself. Well. You've, done <laughs> You've done well. well. You know, he was quite. He was quite impressed. Um, so I'm thinking, um, am I going to be fighting with some in every shift? Um, and then there's a couple of other jobs again. This is all in, in, in the first week. I remember getting called to a caravan fire. There was some people who were visiting some family, and they set up a caravan in a vacant block next to a house. Uh, it was cold. They had a bar heater, and a child was left unattended in the caravan. A blanket was kicked on the on the bar bar heater. Caravan went up, and poor child um, was trapped and, and had died. So I remember coming to that. I remember driving over the hill and seeing the the glow of this massive flames and fire. And there was just nothing left. And so, you know, having to be there doing all the crime scene stuff, the parents came in and having to restrain them and, you know, trying to deal with all the family emotions. And then I think there was the next shift after that. I went to my first um, sudden infant death job where, you know, we, we got called and they're the jobs I can remember from my first week. Um, I'm thinking, you know, is it going to get any easier? So in talking about baptism of fire, it certainly was in my case. Now, you, you mentioned that sudden infant death syndrome, which um, uh, I'd like to, if I could, um, late 90s, um, this is a, a job that you attended, which you've described as leaving a, an indelible mark on you as both a police officer and a parent. Um, I had done a number of um, sudden infant death investigations, particularly in, in those years I was working in the child protection area. And I guess to, you know, to point out that the difficulty with any of these jobs is that when a child passes away in circumstances where there's no identifiable cause, you have to keep a very open mind. And it's very difficult because, you know, nine and nine times out of a hundred, these poor parents, you know, have just done nothing wrong. It's just victims of circumstance. So you have to be very mindful that you don't go in there and make people feel like they're a suspect or they've done, you know, th- these people are suffering trauma. So uh, I'd done a number of those. And, and, and incidentally, the very last job I ever did when I, when I was leaving the child protection line of work and I was about to transfer to Brisbane to go and work at the police academy. My very last job was another SIDS death. And that reinforced for me, look, I'm done. I'm After 14 years in this, this line of work, I'm done with this stuff. But this one was many years earlier and was when my own child was the same age. So I think the infant who passed away was about four months old and my, my first child was the same age. Um, and working in regional town, um, I think the reason why that particular case stands out was because I really started to form a kind of relationship with the with the parents because you know I could sort of empathize with them because I had a child the same age and I, I distinctly remember the mother even in her trauma was asking me about how's my baby going you know after in the coming weeks where we had to get statements off them and, and keep them informed about the progress and um, because you're gathering information to, because you've got to pass on that statistical information to the SIDS foundation because anytime there's a SIDS death the investigators have to gather certain information and pass that that on so I had a, a fair bit of contact doing the coronial inquest brief and getting witness statements but she would always ask me how's my bub going and we'd have chats and and she always showed that interest in me and and they were kind of a, maybe a little bit older than me just a young couple and they subsequently went on to have another child and I kept in contact with them for a number of years after that and I think I think that's that's why that particular case really resonates with me there is no tougher job to attend uh, I would say than sudden infant death syndrome it's it's a shocker and for a number of reasons you know you're arriving at a, what is potentially or seen as a crime scene as a police officer. You've got distraught parents, as you've already mentioned. Plus there's 
that sort of confusion in their minds is, well, why are the police sort of even here? Could I ask you to just walk us through, you know, that arriving at a scene like that as a police officer and and how that process unfolds? Because it's a tough, tough environment to step into. Yeah, you're right. You hit the nail on the head. These parents are saying, why are the police here? And typically what will happen is, you know, the, the parents find their child unresponsive. They call the ambulance. Ambulance arrive and they, you know, declare the child deceased. So you go to the house and typically, because I was a detective at the time, the uniform police would get called because that was part of the, that was procedure. Any sudden death, the police get called. And then because it was a child, I would then get called and I was on, I was on call all the time. And so not only do you have uniform police, you've got ambulance, you've got a detective turning up and these people are just in shock. Um, I've, I've been in cases where the child is still there at the house with them and they're still nursing the child. I've been to cases where they're at the hospital and the, the mother or the father is nursing the child and at some point we have to ask them that they need to hand the child over so that the, the hospital staff can do what they need to do. So trying to explain to them that, look, you know, this is procedure. We, we, you know, we have to keep an open mind. And I suppose it's in any of these jobs that I've done, you're so focused on the process. You've got a job to do. You've got to you've got to gather data, gather evidence. You need to eliminate any suspicion that maybe something adverse has happened. Because I have I have been involved in cases where, for example, um, shaken baby syndrome. I've had two of those cases in my career where one child died and one suffered severe brain damage from a shaking injury, um, where the parent has become so frustrated with the crying child they've just shaken the ba- baby violently. So I have been exposed to the cases where something untoward did in fact happen. So you've got to go into these cases keeping a very open mind, but you've got to keep reminding yourself that, look, chances are these people have done nothing wrong and you've got to you've got to support them, but still you've got a job to do. And, and you mentioned, Jack, that amongst a plethora of difficult things, one of the difficult aspects of the job is, and it's often uniformed police, often young, you know, uniformed general duties police that are there, they actually have to take custody of that little one, uh, of the deceased, because... It's, it's a coroner's case, it's an unexplained death, so the the little one has to be taken away and that uh, that can be an extremely traumatic and difficult thing for, for the parents. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes it may be, I'm not depending depending on procedures, but I believe currently once a person is, once a life extinct has been issued, the ambulance may not be, do the transport, so a government undertaker has to come out and do the transport. So again, it really depends on the circumstance whether the half a dozen or so SIDS deaths investigations that I did over my time, some were where we've actually gone to the family home where the child currently was and we had to make arrangements to transport the child ultimately to the hospital and to the, to the morgue, sadly. Others were where the child had been presented to the hospital by the parents, and that's where we've, you know, we've we've had the interaction with the the parents in in a room in the hospital. And again, I, I do distinctly remember that that very sad, you know, very painful moment where the parents have to say goodbye and hand their their deceased child over, and and it's just absolutely tragic. Mm. Mm. You attended a number of these. I mean, at this stage, you'd have been in the job for 10 years or so, and you've you've attended quite a few. Could I suggest that perhaps one of the reasons it stayed in your mind and was so impactful was that you yourself had become a father? And as we all know, when that happens, it just it, it just changes your whole outlook on life on so many different levels. But uh, as a father of a little one of the same age as this little one that passed away, um, that must have played quite a part in, in, in that case, staying with you. And, and as you've said in uh, earlier chats, leaving that indelible mark on you as a, as a dad. 
Mm, absolutely. I got into the child protection work quite early in my career and I was because I again because I was, you know, I was so young when I joined by the time I became a detective, I was still in my my twenties, my, my late twenties, and I was in the child protection area before I had kids. And then because I was in it in it for so long, fourteen years later I've got three kids of my own and I'm still doing that line of work and, and my own personal attitudes had certainly changed and particularly doing things like you know, child abuse, uh, whether it be physical neglect, sexual abuse, and the, the SIDS investigations. You know, my, my wife would say, look, I was paranoid. I'd always be in checking the child, making sure my child is breathing when they're sleeping. And you do become, you know, very paranoid. And, and you know, back in the day, and we're talking 25 years ago too, Jack, you, you attended jobs like that. I think I'd be right in saying certainly was the case when I was in the job that there was no, it's not a criticism, it's just a reflection on how things were. There was no, um, There was no sort of support offered. There was no... It was like, that's your job, you go, you do it, and then you go home, and, and however you deal with it, well, that's that's how you deal with it. And as as we would both know, there's, you know, you keep attending those jobs, and it's I've had blokes um, sitting across the microphone who describe it as being like that bucket just filling up with water, you know, that drip after drip after drip. Yeah, I think that's inherent in policing. You know, police officers feel that they have to be strong, you know, and, and that's why I think so many police, and sadly there are a number of police that fall over at some point because... You feel like you are the one, you are so used to people leaning on your shoulder. You are the one that has to be strong. And at some point, something will break. And I, I think I think it's, you know, because you feel it's a sign of weakness. And, you know, for all police who have experienced this, that, you know, they know that, that to show emotional, to show that you're not coping perhaps is a fear. That, and we all know that's not, not true, but we feel it at the time. We feel that, you know, is it a sign of weakness? And, um, you know, the, and then we, you know, you see a, a lot of that, Coping is through drinking excessively and other ways to cope. Um, and I probably went down that path at some point as well, you know, having too many beers after work and we'd have our own informal debrief session. But, you know, certainly no formal, you know, critical debriefing or anything like that. And I think I think the organi- the policing organisations are far better now at that sort of thing and recognising, you know, trauma for their officers and, and providing support. I think we do that quite well now. The great thing that I've seen, and, and as you've just reiterated there in the police now, is it's almost like a mandatory process. So you have to go through it. It's not a choice that you're making to go through it. And I think that's the biggest barrier to break through. So, um, and and as a result, hopefully moving forward, you know, um, coppers, young coppers that start to attend jobs like this are going to just have a little bit more support on the other side of it. Yeah, and, and you know, my, my experience has been that I know for some police they've been to some horrific scenes, and, and I've seen my, my share of bad things, but some police have been some to some terrible things that you just cannot unsee and and, and never forget. But I, I think a lot of it is just it's just relentless. It, there's no end in sight, and for me that was the case. I always look back and think. I certainly was suffering burnout and depression and I didn't realize it. And I think that's why I started writing. It was my kind of way of a bit of, bit of therapy, but you don't, you don't, you know, they talk about the, the black dog, you know, you, you don't see it. You don't realize that you are suffering from burnout until you either fall over or you, you extricate yourself out of that situation. For me, I did. And I, I, I realized I had to get out and I moved and my career took a, a different path, but I've always said it was not so much the work itself. I, I always feel that I generally cope pretty well with seeing suicides and and dealing with you know trauma against children and I think I always was able to deal with the the type of work but it was just relentless it never stopped every single day the phones kept ringing it was it was one step forward two steps back and I think anyone who's worked in the police will feel this way whether you're first response general duties or a detective or other other lines of work police prosecutors it's that feeling that we're not making any headway 
we're not making any change. And, it, you know, as much as we like to think that hopefully we are, we are doing a lot of good out there, but sometimes it can feel like it's very futile, you know, the, the, the endemic issues that are going on in society and we're just, you know, we're just, you know, mopping up. And, and I think that's what, that certainly was my feeling, and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of police feel that way. It's just that that relentlessness and feeling like it's a it's a losing battle. Um, they continue to keep fighting the good fight. You know, the coppers that are out there today doing jobs as we speak are probably out there doing these jobs. You know, they keep they keep turning up to the jobs, and and you kind of have to. But it's certainly relentless, that's for sure. And that for me was the contributor for my burnout. There's another case uh, which involved a stepfather uh, indecently assaulting a child. Is that a case that you can have a bit of a chat to us about? It's interesting when I started looking back, what are the jobs I remember? Over the course of you know, the 14 years I was working in the, in the child protection area, I did many, many of these investigations where a, a child had generally had been offended against by someone that they know. And, and to dispel any, any you know, myths around, you know, children are only at risk when they get abducted by a stranger. The vast majority of cases that I investigated over those years, and there'd be hundreds of cases that I, in, I investigated where, you know, there was a relationship, either it was a step-parent or a biological parent or a, a babysitter or a friend of the family. It was always generally someone known to the child because they had that opportunity and, and there was some trust. So I did many, many of these cases. This one stands out for me because it was so complex and lasted for so long. It started we had a walk-in, as often would happen. You know, you, you come to work and you, you, you're planning out your shift and you, you're going to do briefs of evidence and interview witnesses, and then you have a walk-in. So mum comes in with the child, uh, making allegations that the child has disclosed that the uh, the stepfather has uh, has been sexually interfering with, with the child. So the, the mother was doing everything, you know, everything right, protecting the child, bringing the child in. And we had a good case, and the child was a very gave an, an excellent interview, was able to particularise and detail, and I interviewed the child, uh, was able to interview the, you know, it was it was a sexual abuse that had gone on for a long period of time. The mother said that she always knew or suspected something was going on, but could never quite put a finger on it. She was able to corroborate a lot of the, the child's allegations. Fast forward, suspect denied the allegations, but I felt we had a pretty good case. We had an excellent child witness, uh, had some other corroborating evidence and went to trial, went through the communal hearing. And it took, a, you know, probably best part of two years to finally get to district court trial. But as you know, you know, any criminal trial is only as strong as the evidence that the court is is prepared to allow. Uh, on this occasion, only certain evidence was allowed to be presented to the jury. And, and as a result, there was an acquittal. So there was no conviction. And for me, the reason why this case stands out is because usually that's where my involvement ends and I go on to the next case and I've got multiple court cases on the go and you have no sort of ongoing contact with, with the families. You, you never really learn how did they, you know, how did they sort of move on in their lives. And it was only some time later that we got a call from the Department of Child Safety saying we have a child protection notification. There's a, a child in a, in a home and uh, there was concerns about sexual abuse. And it turns out it was the same family. And what had happened is that the mother had uh, resumed her relationship with the the perpetrator, or I should say alleged perpetrator, because he was never convicted. And the child was still there and had, had expressed to teachers that they felt unsafe. So we had to go in and make an, uh, an investigation. And th- therein lies the conundrum of here is a, 
uh, alleged perpetrator who was acquitted in a criminal court, yet we still had significant child protection concerns. And because a child protection investigation doesn't carry the same weight of evidence as a criminal trial, um, we had to make a decision because what the mother was saying was that, oh, look, I've resumed my relationship with the husband because he was acquitted. He must have been innocent. He mustn't have done this. And, and look, he, he's promised that you know he won't go into my child's room at night and say, look, I think everything's okay. So the mother had got, for, for whatever reason, circumstances, she was back in a relationship with, with the alleged perpetrator. So some difficult decisions had to be made about what are we going to do with this child? And ultimately, the child had to be taken into care and ended up in foster care because the the circumstances were such that we just felt that they were not safe. So it was, it's a, it's a real difficult decision. And some may say, well, look, you know, this, you know, everyone's entitled to be, uh, you know, um, innocent until proven guilty, but where do you make the decision to ensure that a child is, is, is safe? And, and what really resonates me about this is uh, a number of years later, this child came up to me and said, I remember you, you investigated my case. Thank you for what you did. And the relationship with the mother was completely um, gone. And the child was saying, you know, that they felt let down by the mother, let down by the system and, and kind of let, let down by the, the, the people that were meant to protect them. The child was a, a survivor, but you could clearly see that, you know, I'm thinking, man, you know, this is the first time I've really seen how these kind of jobs affect the kids into the future. So, you know, the, this child was very re- resilient, but I'm thinking, yeah, it, it's true. You know, the, the child was let down by the person that, that they should have been able to trust. Uh, by the person that should have been able to protect them and, and the system that should have been there to, to, to ensure that they were safe. And, you know, but despite that, the child was still very positive and had a, a, a really, you know, very positive outlook on life of doing well at, at school and, and so on. So for that reason, that particular case really resonated with me. It's interesting too, you mentioned oftentimes um, when you're doing that job through necessity, I think you, know, you often speak to detectives, particularly in that line of work, because there's so many moving parts once it gets into that courtroom. Jack, would it be fair to say that you almost take it as a win, and I use that word, there's probably a better word to use, to actually get the case into court. You've done your job, it's here in court, and the rest is in the lap of the gods. But for some reason, this one sort of stayed with you because you, through fate or whatever, you, you sort of had to revisit that that victim survivor some, some time afterwards. Yeah, I, I felt that I had failed, and I felt the system had failed. But as you say, up until that point, I felt it was a win, regardless of the outcome. It's not that I had any reason for this this man to go to jail. I didn't have any particular personal opinions about that. It was about making sure the child was safe, and I felt that we had done that. We had acted on it. We'd taken action. You know, the, the, the mother was acting protectively, and, and the child was now safe and could say yes. You know, for so long, I, I didn't say anything because I felt no one would believe me. I feel so so much better because someone did believe me. And I'm now safe. I don't have to be subjected to that anymore. And then fast forward, the child's back in the same circumstances and no one is protecting the child. No one is believing the child or that's that's how they felt. And so we had to come back and take further action. And, and you know, I felt that the child had been, had been sort of traumatised multiple times over. And of course, you know, Jack, as you so rightly say, you feel yourself as an investigator that you've you've let the child down, you feel circumstances, the system lets them down. But I guess look, we can't lose sight of the fact that the the, the, the offender here was the stepfather, <laughs> allegedly. They were the one that uh, that caused this grief and they, you know, through all the best efforts of others like yourself, it's uh, it's that individual who um, 
who's the crux behind this. Uh, and again, I don't lay blame on, on the mother. I, I certainly appreciate the pressure that she was put under. You know, who do I believe? Do I believe my husband or do I believe my child? And, you know, so it's easy to to sort of start pointing fingers, but it wasn't that, you know, it was just about a decision has to be made to ensure the child feels safe. Um, so I, I, I do feel that the mother was uh, an innocent party in this and was probably a victim as well, because as uh, as a result, her relationship with her child is, has also been significantly damaged because of what this perpetrator has done and has put her in this situation. Jack, you know, working in that environment, you're working in child protection, you're dealing with what most would agree to be the worst sort of forms of crime that there is. You did it for a long time, 14 years. Was there any pattern amongst the offenders that you worked with or interviewed or or was there anything that sort of you kept revisiting or was the pattern that there was no pattern what what are your what are your recollections around that yeah that's that's a fair comment i think i think the pattern is there is no pattern again as i said most abuse towards children happens oftentimes within within the family unit or within ex- extended family or someone who has an association or relationship with the, with the child who has developed some sort of trust. Um, and I've been into a whole range of different circumstances where people in sort of lower socio- socioeconomic areas, like say um, high density living caravan parks, where children are being left to be babysat by certain people that shouldn't be babysitting children um, because of a lot of other issues that are going on. You know, there were those cases where, you know, people were finding themselves in in poverty, domestic violence, alcohol abuse, and as a result, because these people, these parents were not coping with life, they were not coping as parents, and oftentimes they were leaving their kids with um, people that they shouldn't have been. And so I had a number of those cases, but on the other extreme, I've, I've also had professional people, f- and, and I think for the, there's, it's certainly far more taboo. I think that is the perception at least, you know, because abuse occurs within, you know, all walks of life. So, you know, I've definitely seen cases where there were, you know, people working within certain professions who had exposure to children that were committing offences. Again, yeah, there was was certainly no pattern to it at all. One of the, I guess one of the most common cases were where there was, say, a a mother would bring their child in and would make allegations around, say, a step-parent or a boyfriend or someone who was newly in, in the family and what, you know, allegations of the child was being groomed. Then, of course, we, we embarked on all the online expo- child exploitation, and that's a whole new world. You had one of your previous guests, former Detective Inspector John Rouse, worked in that Task Force Argos area. So I, I did some jobs in the, in the uh, online child pedophilia, but most of the ones were, you know, situations within families. And you do that, Jack, for, for 14 years. And as you alluded to before, you know, no matter what area of policing that you work in, whether it's general duties, whether it's uh, homicide, whether it's, you know, domestic violence, whether it's, in this case, working in, in child exploitation, it's that relentless, you know, you get through one case and then you pick up a file for another and you get through that, you pick up a file for another. Could you speak of the the, the impact that 14 years working in that environment had Looking back, did it impact you? Did it did it change the view that you had? You know, I, I I I myself sort of know a couple of chaps that worked in the environment who found that they had to almost stop themselves from looking at you know families and supermarkets and things like that because you'd start to question whether the children were safe. And how did you how did you juggle with that and family life and everything else, Jack? It certainly affected 
you know, in fact, as a young parent myself and being hyper-vigilant in terms of my own children, it played a, a very significant role there. But yeah, I, I was very suspicious if I was off, I was never off duty because, and working in a smaller regional community, people know you. I was playing sport with um, people I'd had dealings with. I, I, I played, I, I played sport with a, a guy that I'd previously arrested for a minor drugs offences and we laughed about it then. You know, or, or juveniles who were, you know, young people who were committing property offences and breaking enters and stealing cars and then later on, I, you know, another one of these young guys I'd arrested when he was 14 and he's now 18 and I'm playing soccer with him. And, you know, so you can kind of laugh about it. Um, but you're, you're never off duty. You're, you're hyper vigilant. You're hyper suspicious. And you do. You look at the world through a completely different lens. You never stop looking at the world through the lens of a police officer. That's for sure. I guess even when you break it down even further, you know, you, you, you've got three little ones and they're getting to an age where, you know, they're getting invites for sleepovers and things such as that. Um, <laughs> you'd have you'd, you'd have been a nervous dad, I guess, and it's no reflection on anything other than, you know, than the environment that you're working in, allowing your kids to go and stay at someone's house. These would all be things where you'd be rolling things around in your head, I'm sure. Exactly, because these sort of thoughts are forefront in your mind, whereas for most normal people, inverted commas, normal people, you know, because that's my, my job was dealing with, you know, child protection. So I was hyper vigilant when it came to those sort of things, whereas for other people were probably far more relaxed about it. And I kind of had to learn to be, you know, to, to be more relaxed, but I'd always make a point of trying to have those protective behaviours conversations with my kids and to try and foster an environment where they they feel that if anything happened that made them uncomfortable, they can come come and speak to us. So that was probably one of the learnings for me because from talking to hundreds of kids over many years, a lot of these kids said they never came forward because they felt that they would not be believed. You know, people say, why did they just not say say anything? Because they they fear what would happen. They're either going to break up the family unit. They're going to be made to feel that it was their fault. Maybe they think it's their fault. Um, and they're just completely fearful. And so they suffer in silence. And, and I certainly didn't want my kids to, to be in that environment. So that was one thing I learned as a parent to, to try and have the relationship with my kids where they could come to us. And I said, if, you, if something's happened or if you've done something a little bit naughty, just tell the truth because telling lies about it is 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 more serious. But if something bad happens to you, please come and talk to us about it. We, we're not going to get cranky. So yeah, that was one one big thing for us as parents and for me in particular. And and would you agree, Jack, that that, that relationship with your, with your kids that doesn't start when they're fifteen or sixteen, mate? That's you know that starts when they're real little tackers, doesn't it? You know, and 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 you start to foster that from a very very early age. So when they are at that older age, when they are going out a bit more and maybe getting a bit more exposed to different aspects of life, you've already got that relationship and you've got that communication in place. Yeah, I think so. When my first child left home, my wife and I said, "Tick the box." You know, we've done everything we can. We've now allowed her to to tackle the big bad world on her own. We've equipped her with all the tools that we can. We're always here for her, but it's time for her to discover the world on her own. And I think as a parent, you know, as you're right, from from when they're a child right through to their young teens, that's when the the, the hard work is done to to start to equip them with the tools. And I, I like to think that, you know, as parents, we've done that. Um, and our, our kids are coping well as young adults now. But yeah, it, it starts from day one. Jack, you described the uh, the following case as the most significant of your thirty three year career. Can you just walk us through this this case, please? Yeah, it was a it was a homicide investigation. As a child protection detective, we had received training to interview children. Most of the children we interview are victims, but quite often they are also witnesses. So we might come in to assist the. So the, the CIB team might be the lead investigators for a homicide, as was the case, um, but myself and other 
child protection detectives come in because of our expertise at interviewing children who might have witnessed something. So I was I was involved in a number of those cases. There was another homicide where it was a domestic homicide. A, a, a father had stabbed a woman and 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 killed the woman in the in the presence of the two boys, and I had to come and interview those boys. So I'd done a few of those sort of jobs where the kids had been exposed to to violence. This one in particular, this particular case I'm about to talk about, is one that um, really stuck with me over over a number of years. Long story short, a husband and wife who both had their own children, but also had children from a previous relationship. So it was a number of children were in the house. There was a home, it was a, essentially a home invasion and Truda came into the home with a, a, a handgun. And essentially the the woman and the man were, were shot and killed almost execution style, you'd have to say. Um, the children were never the targets and the children were never targeted by the offender. However, the children saw what happened and they were they were very crucial witnesses. So when I got called in, as we all got called in uh, immediately, my job with an, a few other detectives was to look after these children and to uh, make sure that they were they were safe, but also to um, interview them independently or separately to see what they saw. And as it turned out, these children were able to provide important inf- information in terms of descriptions and conversation that they overheard um, that ultimately led towards a conviction of, of the um, the alleged perpetrator. But again, the reason why this one sticks to me so much is because of the fact that we got to know these kids uh, for, for days. We were kind of looking after these kids until they were, you know, they were eventually they handed over to um, protective services and we were having ongoing contact with the kids. And then that relationship continued right through to preparation for court, right through to committal hearings, subsequent um, court court hearings right through to the the trials and then there was a, a subsequent trial um so all this time we're having contact with the ki- these kids I, i've sort of you know these kids are now adults and I, I've, I've lost contact with them over the years um there was one one of the children i had to wash some blood off his feet because um, i noticed he was sitting in the interview room and he had some blood on his feet so I took him down to the bathroom and, and washed that blood from his feet and i remember that that really stuck with me so for that reason, and, and then we also got drawn into the overall investigation, all police within the local area got caught up in, and, and we all got caught into the, the overall investigation, but my primary focus was dealing with the kids. Um, yeah, so that was certainly a significant case that um, had, had a resounding effect on, on me. And this was a case where eventually, and it's a, it's a long, very thorough process where a conviction was secured against the intruder, against the offender, be it a double, a double homicide. Part of that process obviously would have been dependent on the evidence provided in court by these children. Now, these these kids are very, very young. How does that process work with, with little ones giving evidence or being in the witness box? Are they, are they in court? Do they have to do that in the presence of the offender, Jack, or are they screened? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, so in Queensland, the Evidence Act has provisions, Section 93A and Section 21A. I still remember the section numbers. Uh, 93A is the the provision that allows um, children to be interviewed on audio and video recording, and then their evidence their evidence in chief gets played to the court. So they're not required to sit in the witness box and give evidence in chief. The video of the interview is played. However, they still need to be available for cross-examination. Um, so that that assists with the, the evidence process. The other provision relates to other things that can happen to ensure that the child feels safe during the court process. Things like perhaps the alleged offender might be removed from the courtroom and might watch proceedings from another room through a CCTV screen so that the child does not have to eyeball the alleged perpetrator in the courtroom. They can have a support person present with them when they're giving evidence or perhaps a screen can be put up 
so that the child does not have to see or have any contact with the alleged offender during court. So there's a number of mechanisms that have been built to at least assist children. And, and you know, it's a very tough thing to ask a child to give evidence in, 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 a, in a criminal court. It's hard enough for adults to uh, think about these children. And however, having said that, some of the best witnesses I've ever seen have been young children. They've been, been absolutely brilliant because they just tell it as it is. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of preparation that goes into making sure that the kids are safe. And in, in this particular case, fortunately, the defence had said that we don't need to cross-examine the children. So that was a that was a, an absolute blessing. So that in that case, because they were happy to accept that the the interviews that we'd done with the children on audio video recording were simply played to the court. And at the end of the day, even though we were prepared for it and the children were prepared for it, they were not called to give evidence. And that that was a saving grace. Obviously yourself and others that interviewed them and provided those uh, interviews in court, you, you must have been thrilled that you did that job thoroughly enough that there was perhaps no room for cross-examination for defence and uh, prevented the kids having to go through that. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the whole point of the process, that if, if you do those interviews well, and, and you do need to be um, trained in order to interview a child so that the questions that you ask are not leading, um, so that the interview will be admissible and the defence are not going to try and argue that you put words into the child's mouth. And, and so the way in which you conduct um, these interviews, and again, these kids were still in shock. We're talking about an incident that had happened only hours earlier and they'd witnessed their parents being killed. So we're very mindful of making sure that, that they were coping. Um, but we we were thinking about the process. Look, we, had, we have to do this. We have to get this information from the children to give us a foundation of where do we go, what sort of, you know, because they're the only ones who saw the offender. So we kind of had to balance between the trauma and the shock that these children were suffering versus we need to find this killer at large. Um, and so the decision was made, look, let's get the interviews done as quick as possible. Uh, and then that was done. And the fact that it was done, it was done well, we didn't have to go back and re-interview those kids again. And subsequently, they were not required to give evidence in court. So it is it is pleasing to know, well, perhaps we did a good job in the way we interviewed those kids, that the defence had no reason to argue and, and have those um, interviews uh, deemed to be inadmissible. This is a, an extremely rare form of crime. And when these things do occur, there's usually a, a criminal connection or something such as that. This, this is an offender who knocks on the front door of a family home. Father opens the door, is killed by the offender, and then he turns to kill the, the wife, the mother, in front of the seven children, and then he's off, he's gone. The obvious question is, well, why? What, what, what was the motive? Was there ever a motive established? Did, did the offender ever admit to a motive or anything such as that? So the evidence that was gathered was very strong, but at no point did the offender ever provide a motive. There were certain connections were made around others associations and and theories but nothing that could be proved and ultimately um even though it was proved that the person who had been charged was the person that had had committed the crime and was convicted and sent to, to prison and is still in prison the motive or reasons behind it were never able to be proven or whether there was any other persons involved you know there were theories as i said which i probably can't go into any further detail but there certainly were theories that were explored but that could never be proved so, Jack, 33 years in the job, you attained the rank of, um, of senior sergeant, but made, made the decision after being away from the job, using up some of that long service leave after a year or so, that you would walk away, that you would retire. And are you, are you comfortable sort of discussing that with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk through that. And again, anyone else that's going through this, you know, they might 
sort of empathise or maybe it's, 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 of, it's of use to someone who is going through this at the moment. I, I kind of went through a period where I was just at the crossroads. I turned, what, at this stage, 53. I'd been in the police since I was 18 or 17 when I joined the academy. It's all I'd, I'd ever known. And I just decided to to take a career break, take uh, 12 months off without pay and, and some long service leave. So I was away for about 15 months just to take a break and get away and, and, and kind of reassess. To be honest, I was thinking I'll just come back. But then uh, I had this side gig where I've started doing um, creative writing and I started um, writing crime fiction. And I kind of looked back thinking, well, I was probably doing that as a bit of my own self-therapy. And, and I entered one manuscript into a competition and uh, as a result, I was offered a, uh, a publishing deal. So... Once I started to see that this was a potential opportunity, I started asking myself, what is it that I want to do moving forward? Do I want to stay in in the safe government job until I retire at 60 or do I take a risk and and, uh, take the leap of faith and try something different? And so really, because I I come to the conclusion that I probably couldn't do both. I couldn't be writing crime fiction and being a serving officer. There's too many conflicts of interest and, and and that's why I decided to write under a, under a pen name um, for sort of privacy reasons so I could kind of separate the two. But really for me, it was just the, the fact that life had thrown a new opportunity, which was exciting. And so I had to make the decision, do I stay with um, where it's safe? And, and I have to say, I d- certainly didn't leave with sour grapes. I was particularly unhappy. Sure, there were certain things that were getting under my skin, the bureaucracy and, and other things that I was seeing in my role as a senior sergeant. That was, I felt like it was death by paper, a thousand paper cuts and the, you know, the bureaucracy in particular, political correctness and things like that. And I, I started asking myself, do I embark on promotion because I'd done all my qualifications to be promoted to inspector? You know, do I embark on that development program to get promoted? And then I just asked myself the question, do I really want to? Is it going to make myself any happier? And then uh, my police inspector who um, was diagnosed with um, with cancer, um, he's still with us and he's still fighting, but his words were, mate, do it. Life's short. I'm here to tell you, life's short. Do what makes you happy. So ultimately, because I was offered opportunities and I also was also offered some work in the training in the private training sector as well which I've started doing um, because I had a lifeline outside the police and I think a lot of police just feel trapped and there's a lot of guys I went through the academy with that are just saying oh I can't wait till I retire retire and they're just pushing through their last five six seven years and they just cannot wait for retirement and sadly a lot of people get to the age of 60 and they have health issues and they think they're not able to enjoy their superannuation and their, you know, travel. And, and so for me, I just made a personal deci- decision. I think the universe is telling me it's my time to walk away and see what else life has to offer. And uh, I think when I took that career break, I realized, wow, I'm liking what I'm seeing outside, outside the walls of the job, um, which I never had. A, I've peeked over the walls, but I'd never really jumped over the walls to see what's outside. And when I started working in the private sector and, and you know, my writing career has really started to flourish, I just made the decision, bugger it. So I signed the form and uh, the day I had to hand in my badge and my gun was uh, was certainly mixed emotions, leaving the police family and all that. But ultimately, I've never regretted it and I'm happy, happy with uh, the direction my life has taken me. Jack, what do you miss most about being in the job? Certainly miss the camaraderie, miss being part of it all. You know, you, you still see now, you know, there's some things on the news and the police are investigating something. You, you certainly miss being part of it. Incidentally, I had to walk past police headquarters to the studio here today and I'll look across and I can actually see the window of the office that I used to work in. It's that familiarity to know that I'm not part of that anymore. I'm an outsider now. I'm not, not you know, part of the clique. You like to think the, the police family is always there, but you do feel like, you know, there's one, you see a police car drive past and you think, oh, that's not me anymore. 
the way I've summed it up, I miss the I miss the idea of being a police officer more than I actually miss being a police officer. If that makes sense. Oh, look, Jack, that's fantastic. And as we come into a landing, I just want to thank you so very much, Jack, for uh, for taking the time to drop in for a chat. Um, yours has been very much a, a storied career over thirty three years, and um, I just want to thank you for your honesty and and being so candid and taking us through some of particularly some of the most you know confronting aspects of your time and the job. Thank you so much for your service to the people of Queensland, and um, and also uh, also Jack, wish you all the very best. Yeah, thanks, Brent. No, thank thank you. It's, I'm very humbled to to have been invited to come on. Humble me. I kind of feel, you know, I've um, not of anyone importance, but I, I like to think. Hopefully, if, if anything that I've shared helps someone out there, I, you know, I'm really pleased. So, thank you so much for the opportunity. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.